Good morning. How's everybody doing? How about we try that again? Good morning. Great to see you guys. How about if everybody moves all the way up to the first couple of rows? My name is Matthew Rojek. Betty and I, my wife, have been coming to Mac about eight years. Grateful to be here. Uh, very grateful to Pastor Leon that he gives me opportunity to share God's word with you. First of all, I want to say much of this sermon that I'm going to preach today comes directly as quoted from Martin Luther King in a book called Strength to Love. And even that which is not directly quoted, very many of the specific points that he makes throughout his sermon are direct points that I make. I've, of course, added uh, some stuff myself, but I, I want to make sure you guys understand a lot of this is from his book called Strength to Love. The other thing I wanted to mention is my best friend and wife has told me sometimes when I get excited up here, she wonders if you guys feel like I'm scolding you. (laughs) And I want to say I'm not scolding you. Part of it is this is stuff that I'm learning maybe afresh or new for the first time myself. And if any of you guys have known me for a while, you know I I can get excited. So please forgive me if, if it's come across that way. Are you living a life of balanced contradictions? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for worship. Thank you, worship team, for bringing us before the throne of grace. Thank you for washing over us, Father, with your word, even through worship. Lord, would you also wash over us now with your word through the scriptures? Lord, you are high and exalted. Lord, be honored. Holy Spirit, come. Illuminate the Word of God to our hearts to bring wisdom, to bring understanding, to bring discernment, and to bring change through sanctification as you reveal to us your Son and how you would have us to live. In Jesus' name, amen. No man is strong unless he bears within his character antitheses strongly marked. No man is strong unless he bears within his character antitheses strongly marked. King quotes this French philosopher, and and the word antitheses is a rhetorical device in which two opposites are used in a sentence to achieve a contrasting effect. Wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Talk about a contrast. The context of this scripture is Jesus is preparing his disciples to go out amongst wolves, and he's sending them as sheep. Even that is antithetical. Imagine the weird mutation characteristically if you were to merge a dove and a serpent. My mind can't even grasp that. But here, Jesus gives them the tool of opposing perspectives as they go to confront the world and the population of wolves that eagerly await to devour anyone. And then King also says, Life at its best 
is a creative synthesis of opposites in fruitful harmony. Life at its best is a creative synthesis, a gathering, a molding, a unifying of contrasts in fruitful harmony. Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And as believers, we do this every day, maybe not even knowing it. And the scriptures are full of this idea of contrasting ideas that we bear in our character. And the philosopher has strongly marked where we are passionate about what appear to be contrast or contradictory terms. And let me give you a couple of examples. Jesus says we're to take up our cross daily. Now think about what that means. We are to embrace every day a torturous, painful, miserable suffering of the cross. Where you either die from asphyxiation or they break your legs and then you die of asphyxiation. And then what's the antithesis of that? Philippians said, we're to rejoice always. Now how do we do that when we're dying daily to the cross? Bearing about in it. Ephesians 2 says, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. So we have this idea given to us that we, in essence, do nothing for our salvation because not only is the salvation a gift, but the very faith that has been given to us to believe that the gift, in fact, can save us from damnation, even that faith is a gift from God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then what does Philippians say? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Didn't they just tell us that it's not of works because we're going to boast? And what about James? What does James say? He says, okay, let's talk about faith. He said, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Antitheses strongly marked show a strong man or woman who's able to juggle those things on a daily basis. Romans 12, what's that say? Be a living sacrifice. The only sacrifice the Jews knew back then, or the Gentiles, who I'm assuming knew about the sacrifice, was they got their throats slit on the altar of God. Is there any living portion of that? So Jesus is calling us to live dead. To live dead. Contrasting ideas held strongly with conviction. And I encourage you guys, look up the Hebrews, they call it the Faith Hall of Fame in 11, where it contrasts women receiving their dead raised, quenching fires. Others were tortured and jeered 
spit upon. King uses a couple of phrases here that I want you guys to hear, and I'm going to repeat them often, as he defines this scripture. He uses the words tough-minded for the serpentine wisdom that's exhorted to the disciples and us as they go out amongst wolves. And it's antithesis, tender-heartedness, as they expose themselves to the cruelties that await them as harmless doves when confronting headlong the wolves that want to devour them. Tough-minded versus simple-minded, tender-hearted versus cold-hearted. These are things that we can train ourselves to. This is the sanctification process. I know some of you in here are tough minded. And that's your strong suit. You have got to embrace the tender heartedness equally as God develops you as the man or woman of God that he desires to you. So just realize, even though you might be naturally gifted with one or the other, Jesus calls us to be multifaceted, let's say. King talks about three characteristics of being tough-minded. One is to be an incisive thinker. And I ask you, can you clearly identify the core issue when you're having a conversation, when you're watching a TV program, a documentary, when you're having a conversation with someone, a political conversation? Are you able to ignore the fluff, the superlatives, And as an incisive thinker, look at what the core is that's in this discussion. And as I was thinking through this, one of the things I thought about is how often when we're reading in the newspaper or we're watching a news program, someone gets caught busted doing something and they add this little addendum and they say, well, they had a previous criminal record. What does that have to do with them getting arrested for whatever it was. It has nothing to do with it, unless, of course, the police officer got the license plate or facially recognized the guy. But the reality is, you and I both know, they bring that up. Journalistic propaganda. And it clouds the clarity of us being an incisive thinker. Well, maybe they, if they did it before... They're probably guilty, right? Oh, he's done it five or six times? Well, criminal record, of course he's guilty. That's not incisive thinking. Can you realistically, point number two King makes, that you're able to realistically appraise a situation? Are you able to set aside personal preferences, dispositions, and other external influences so that you're able to judge a given idea or circumstance for what it is. Not what you think it is, not what you wish it to be, maybe not even what it appears to be. Because quite often, there's a facade that you and I have to look past. 
And King uses, man, I, I love this. He talks about prejudging or post-judging. Prejudging, you walk into something with a prejudice. Whether you look at an African-American kid with a hoodie and his pants down and immediately say, oh, geez. Or you look at a white corporate CEO who just got $5 million even though he ran the company in the ground. Do we prejudge either of those things? Or do we, as King exhorts us to, post-judge? Get the information. Get all the information via being an incisive thinker. And then post-judge. Where you have all the facts and you've set aside your personal prejudices or whatever it is that would cloud the reality of the situation that you've come upon. Which leads to King's third point, being able to be a decisive thinker. Do you waver once you've made that decision? Or are you able to say, no, this is the decision I've, I've made and I'm going to stick with it. I want to talk about a couple of things. I think that there is what I call advertising treachery. Advertisers know your and my sin nature of self-indulgence. They know our baseness of wanting more, wanting bigger, wanting best. Think about the money that is spent in advertising to woo you and I to pull out our checkbook. Or you and I to embrace a theology of, you deserve it. You're worth it. That's treachery. I remember having a conversation with my son a number of years ago where I was like boo-hooing the fact that like, man, I thought this world was like better than it is and I just keep seeing nothing but treachery. And he said, Dad, you're a Christian, right? What does the scripture say? world is full of sinners. And not to be a complete cynic, but they're out to get you. Advertising treachery. Journalistic propaganda. I don't care if you're liberal, conservative, down the middle. We need to be careful as we listen to the voices we do, that we don't just assume that they are truth. Or the only truth. There's journalistic propaganda to get you and I to buy into whatever it is. Republican, Democrat, however you vote. King has a great story, and I forgot to start my timer, so yeehaw, you guys are going to be in for a little bit longer. No, um, King talks about when he was uh, in New York City, this is uh, 50s or 60s, he's going to his hotel room, and for most of you, you guys are too young to even recognize this, but in elevators, there used to be a dude set on a chair, and he was dressed to the nines, and he, when you walked in the elevator, he would say, sir, what floor? And he would push the button for you. And that's all he did. So King walks into the elevators, going up to his room, and he said, hey, how come there's no 13th button? 
And the elevator operator said, well, it's because of superstition. People are afraid of the number 13, so we've just gone right to the 14th floor. And the operator says to King, but you know what the irony is, right? The 14th floor is the 13th floor. And then as I was thinking about this, now here's the real irony. If you're superstitious and you worry about those things, you have made a determination in your mind that there is evil that is strong enough to affect you, to bring harm to you, because you walked under a ladder or a black cat walked in front of your path or you somehow got hooked up with the number 13. Now listen to the irony of this. If they have that much power, do you think they're going to be fooled by you just putting the number 14 when you're on the 13th floor? Or spray painting a black cat white? If they're that powerful, are they going to be that stupid and be fooled? King contrasts it with King contrasts being tough-minded with being simple-minded. And he said, simple-minded people are led. And as I've thought through this, it's because we're distracted. It's because we desire pleasure and self-indulgence. And that clutters our minds with no time for discipline of thought. How many people do you know that literally meditate on ideas, let them ruminate in their mind, do so, doing so from as unbiased of an opinion as they can? Simple-minded people choose the path of least thinking. Take a sound bite, okay, that's mine. That's my belief, that's my conviction. They don't like change because it creates the necessity for reevaluating something. Right. Oh, we've always done it that way. Like, oh, come on, really? We got to change now? Why do we got to change? They don't want to think. Tradition versus truth. Was listening to Ravi Zacharias preach. He was in a meeting. There was a missionary there. The missionary was um, translating the scriptures into the native tongue of the people that he was ministering to. And when he wanted to tell them that Jesus was the bread of life, there literally was no bread in this country. They didn't eat bread. They didn't have the means for making bread. So he translated the scripture, Jesus is the rice of life. And there was some banter of well, you can't do that. That's not what the original Hebrew or Aramaic was. It's bread. But what's the point if the context is wrong that we're trying to tell people about? You could say Jesus is the, sh- the protein drink of life. Jesus is the ribs protein of life. Jesus is the vegan diet of life. There's context here that our traditional minds would reject something because we're simple-minded and we're not tough-minded. So there's a quote up there. I use emotion for the masses, but reason for the few. Who said it? Jonathan, I saw your lips move. I saw your lips move. 
Okay. Anybody have a clue? Who said it? He's German. Adolf Hitler. I use emotion for the masses and reason for the few. Why emotion? Because then everything else pales in comparison to our fear. And reason is thrown out the window. Then the other term King uses is tender-hearted. What a pretty, what a pretty set of words. As both of these do, tender-heartedness balances tough-mindedness, as well as tough-mindedness balances tender-heartedness. It assists decision-making by adding mercy versus strictness to the adherence of X, whatever X is. X is the law. X is its bread of life. You can't say rice of life. It's, we've always done it this way, it's the Baptist code of conduct. We're going to get to some other scriptures in a minute that will really highlight this point, but if we are so tough-minded that we say immediately they deserve jail time, or whatever it is, versus tender-heartedness, We've become cold-hearted. And that's exactly what the scriptures warn us about. It creates a healthy balance so that we don't let cold-heartedness creep in. It allows a believer to have a smile on his face versus scorn as we deal with the wolves that surround us it would be much easier to just turn around and walk away after you've invited somebody for the 15th time, tried to talk to somebody for the 15th time. And if I can, I'm just going to give you a a personal example. Dude lives across the street from me, Warren. I love this dude. And I've gone over and we've had great conversations. He's been to church once or twice. And I I like him because he's an artist and, and he thinks outside the box. And he's blown me off a bunch of times. Supposed to come to church a couple of times. Supposed to go to the Eastern Market with me a couple of times. Supposed to start a Bible study with me a couple of times. And fortunately, God has just given me a heart of love for this brother. Again, because he's an artist. And so I went over there the other day, and man, his head's down. I'm all, hey, Warren, how you doing? He's all, man, you just keep coming back, don't you? And he said, thank you for your mercy. Literally, he said, thank you for your mercy. And again, not saying that for me, just telling you, tenderheartedness works. And it also helps us to see people as more than cogs in the wheel of life. I want to give you some some examples. Woman caught in adultery. Pharisees bring this gal Hey, Jesus, we caught her in the act of adultery. Moses' law says we should stone her. What do you say? So what does Jesus do? Now think about this, because it doesn't say this, but this is the truth of the Scripture. He says stone her. Tough-minded. But he also says, tough-minded, you who are without stone, 
be the first one to cast it. But think about that. In essence, he says stoner to blow their minds. And then what happens? Everybody drops a stone, walks away. Jesus says to the woman standing there, embarrassed as all get out. Hey, woman, where are your accusers? What's the answer? Uh, man, there's none, Lord. Tender-hearted, neither do I accuse you. Tough-minded, go and sin no more. Man, man, think of you. Man, he's juggling these things. Rich young ruler, this one blew my mind. Now think about this. Rich young ruler comes to say, hey, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, hey, why do you call me good? There's only one good, that's the Father. And then he list, gives out this list. Rich young ruler says, man, from my youth I've kept these things. Do you know what's the next, what it says in the next verse? What does it say? Come and follow me. Nope. What's it say? Say it again. Say it. Yeah. He loved them. How many places do you see in the scripture where it says either Jesus loved them or Jesus said, like for me, love and faith? Or, man, you got great faith. Not many times. Tender hearted. Man, I love you, brother. You've been keeping the law since you were a kid? And then what happens? Tough-minded. Oh, yeah. By the way, go and sell all you have. Give to the poor. Lastly, and man, this is probably, this is my favorite scripture, I think. Woman comes to Jesus, says, man, daughter's demon-possessed. Would you please come heal her? And she's talking to his back. And Jesus says, hey, I've come to bring food for the children of Israel, I'm not about it to give it to the dogs of the Gentiles. Now man, think about th- this next part. Thank you, Jesus. So then what does she do? Tough-minded. And she recognizes something I've never even seen before. She knows that all she needs is a crumb. She didn't need a four-course meal. Analogy-wise, she needed a crumb from the Father's table. She understood the total power that the creator of the universe had. And then what's the next thing she recognized? That if he's God, he's a God of mercy. He's a God of kindness. He's a God of love. Or she wouldn't even have asked. And then what happens? Literally, the Bible says Jesus turns around and looks at her and tenderheartedly says, go your way. Your daughter's healed. So, most of you guys have probably heard me preach before and I, I think it's safe to say that like, I like to step on your toes. I like to slap you a little bit to wake you up. I think it's important for us to do that, and I think that's part of being tough-minded. So I want to talk about a couple of things. Raise your ire a bit. Politics. Whether, whatever your persuasion is, does that tradition rule you? Does it rule your vote and your judgment? Or are you tough-minded enough to be a self-thinker 
not necessarily voting the party line or being influenced by sound bites from deceptive politicians. And you guys know I'm speaking to Republicans and Democrats and everybody in between. Do we walk lockstep with our party or are we able to say, wait a minute, you know what? So-and-so's got a great idea. Man, your prayer card fits right in. Abortion. Are you pro-choice? Are you pro-life? Have you prejudged or do you post-judge? And I'm going to tell you straight up, this is me, okay? Not necessarily talking to you guys. This is me. Does my tough-mindedness include tender-heartedness enough to the women in crisis who need my help, my love, my compassion, and not my condemnation. I think a year and a half ago, Brian Hogel and I were talking, and I, I think it was this topic, and I'm all, no, it's murder. And he said, like, yeah, but brother, he wasn't advocating for abortion, but he was advocating for tender-heartedness. I just finished a book. I don't know if you guys have heard of the book out called Unplanned. Phenomenal book. True story written by a gal who in college was recruited by Planned Parenthood, became the director of abortion clinic in Texas for eight years, while a group of, I think it was called Coalition of Love, stood outside the borders of her fence, and every day she drove by and they said, Hey, Abby, we love you. We're praying for you. Anything we can do, let us know. We'd love to help you. They said the same thing to the women who were going for counseling or abortion. Sweetie, there's, there's another opportunity. We'd love to help you. Would you please come talk to us? So as Abby is telling her story in this book, Unplanned, she says something that just, man, it went against everything I believed. She said that some of the people that she worked with actually loved and cared for and had mercy and compassion on the women who were in the midst of these struggles. Me, I'm saying, they're all guilty of murder. And she's saying that there are women there who actually care for these other women and want to see health and life in them. And did it in a tender-hearted way. Immigration. Are you going to allow your tough-mindedness to actually listen to the argument of the opposing side that says they're illegal aliens? That's a legitimate gripe. Or do we ignore it as some right-wing conservative knucklehead that I'm not going to pay attention to? Because like Pastor said, there has to be at times compromise to get to where we want to go. If this bill passes, it's step one. We don't just say, okay, cool, done, and and set back. But if we're not going to have those conversations, man, look what's happening now. We just hate each other. Democrats say Republicans are idiots and vice versa. They're not going to talk. Unless tenderheartedness goes in, but tough-mindedness and balancing 
as the philosopher says, these antithesis strongly marked building our character. Traditionalism versus traditionalism and I put religiosity if there is such a thing. You know, does yesterday or the way we've always done it that way cloud our minds? I love that we got dress up Sunday, whatever we're going to call it. That is really cool. Toots and I have been doing that since we got saved. And then we come down here and you guys are in flip-flops and shorts. We're all, okay, we can do this. Now, is it cool and important to dress up nice and for pastor to wear a robe? I love it. But does that become more important than the people understanding that Jesus is the rice of life? Or, Jesus, or people feeling comfortable when they walk in here. I've had a number of people that we've asked to come here, well, I don't have good enough clothes. I'm all, dude, you can come however you want. I mean, does our traditionalism, our tough-minded traditional, our simple-minded traditionalism screw things up? Or are we going to be tender-hearted? So recently I've, I've read another book, and between Unplanned... Martin Luther King's Strength to Love and this new book that I'm in the middle of called Secrets of an Unlikely Convert. I don't know if you guys, I see you shaking your head. There's a gal named Rosaria Butterfield. Phenomenal story. Uh, YouTube it and she's got an interview with Russell Moore that blow your mind. So this woman, a tenured professor of 19th century English literature at Syracuse University, head of women's studies, like the voice of feminism, and a lesbian is writing a book, getting ready to write a book about how stupid Christianity is. Her and her friends would get together and they'd talk and they say, man, they can't even hold a conversation. They just say, oh, the Bible says, or the Baptists say, and they're not able to have dialogue. So she writes a, if I recall correctly, she writes a blog, and Kristen, correct me if I'm wrong, she writes a blog, a bunch of people write in, and she literally is at her desk, and she's got two piles of paper, um, hate mail, fan mail, and she gets this letter from a pastor, and the letter says, hey, great thinking process that you're going through, wonderful questions but I think maybe you've missed a couple of questions. Would you consider adding these as you're walking through getting ready to write this book? And Rosaria says for six days, she, she doesn't know which side to put it on. And she's like a neat freak. She says nothing comes, as soon as it comes into her house, it's, it, it's one pile or the other, or it's stored or filed. She threw it away three or four times and went and got it out of the garbage. She doesn't know what to do with this pastor. So calls him up, says, hey, what's happening? He, he invites Rosaria Butterfield to their house, him and his wife's house. She comes, tenderheartedness, they prepare a vegan meal for her because they found out her dietary desires. Playing it smart, right? Context. And Rosaria goes on to share, and she says, now, hold your horses. She said, he didn't share the gospel with me the first time I went over for dinner. And he didn't invite me to church. 
Does that blow our minds? Two years, two years they met back and forth where she would come to some of his Christian gatherings and have discussions and he would go and hang with her and her friends. Feminists, lesbians, transgender. And he, he, would, he would just fit in and have conversation with them instead of saying, oh gosh, no, they should be stoned. And she became a believer. And like, you add that, you add unplanned, you add wise as serpents, harmless as doves in my mind. I just, this is probably more for me than it is for you guys. And I'm sorry that it comes out that way. But like, it's important that we not go party line. Because the Lord is going to set you up in situations where he's going to ask you to do some weird stuff that goes against your very nature. And it's important that we hold these antitheses in our character strongly marked. So recently, uh, just two more quick things. Recently I was with a group of Christians. A friend of mine was there, and he made a statement. And it was relatively new, and he made the statement as if it was truth of itself. And that it was the only truth. And it wasn't. It was his truth based on his perspective, based on the people that he hung with. So there was a partial lie to what he said. And I love this brother. He loves the Lord. He's intelligent. He's devoted. I I mean, he's a great guy. But he was wrong. He was wrong because he only had his perspective. I mean, what's the cool thing about Mac? Man, we got a slew of perspectives here. Those cultural conversations that they had as elders, you don't think there wasn't some like, whoa, conversation, dialogue? King says this creative synthesis of contradictions in fruitful harmony. How cool is that? I I love that. So if I can finish with three things. As believers, we must engage. I'm going to keep going back to Warren. And for those of you who are a bit more fearful about conversations, about just stepping into other people's lives, man, believe me, I get it. I, I I'm a bit more of an extrovert, so it's a little bit easier for me, but I understand. But I, I promise you one thing. If you desire to engage with people, ask the Lord and ask the Holy Spirit, like, man, Lord, my, stung, my tongue is stuck. I'm afraid to say something. Start the conversation out about something that you feel comfortable with, and the conversation can lead to righteousness and righteous conversations. Second thing is discern. That's the whole thing that Jesus gave them was this tool of discernment. There are times to be tough-minded. Go ahead, stoner. There are times to be tender-hearted. But you throw it if you ain't got no sin, brother. And lastly, and this might be the most important thing, we need to embrace humility. 
Your opinion is just that. And I'm sorry to say, but it's pretty tiny in the scope of world events and the overall truth of not only God's word, but worldly word. We need to embrace humility. I mean, for me to have any tenderheartedness towards people who have anything to do with abortion clinics, no thanks. No thanks. But I'm a fool. I'm a fool if I don't say my perspective's just part of it. I've got to be tenderhearted. So we've got to embrace humility. No man is strong unless he bears within his character antitheses strongly marked. And life at its best is a creative synthesis of opposites in fruitful harmony. Church, Jesus is calling us to be different-minded. He's not calling us to be opposing Democrats and Republicans. He's calling us to be peacemakers who can get bills passed that slowly work us towards that which we long for most. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as always, it comes back to you. You gave us dozens, hundreds, thousands of examples, so much so that if the books had to be written that would contain them, they wouldn't even be able to be contained in libraries, and we know that. But Lord, thank you for the examples you give us where you're tough-minded, where you're tender-hearted, where you're tough-minded and tender-hearted, where those things just roll through your conversations with men and women. Holy Spirit, would you create in us humility? Would you create in us the clear understanding that you and you alone are the purveyor of truth? But because you sent us the gift of the Holy Spirit, we too can be like-minded and share in those antitheses of tender-heartedness and tough-mindedness. Jesus, we love you. We need you desperately. Desperately, we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to do two more things. We're going to take an offering. Uh, as the ushers come forward, I would just ask that if you want to participate, it would be great for you guys to do so, to honor the Lord in that. If you're new here or hasn't occurred to you that about your tithes and offerings, we're just completely fine with that. And then afterwards, elders are going to be up here uh, giving out communion. If you would take communion back to your seat, once everybody's had a chance to get their communion, I'll pray from up here and we'll take it together as family. In Jesus' name, thanks. Thanks.